If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, on Monday, August 8th, FBI agents entered former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida and seized what they determined were classified documents. The raid was unprecedented. In the 114-year history of the FBI, they have never gone after a former president of the United States. I have many questions about the raid that are still unanswered. Was the raid politically motivated? What documents did President Trump have in his possession that the FBI could have requested he give back? Why did they feel the need to get a search warrant? Why did they take his passports? What actions can Congress take as a body of oversight? And frankly, did it really require 30 agents to go into a place that the president wasn't even at? Here to help answer these questions, and help us better understand what's next. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick. He represents Pennsylvania's first congressional district. Prior to working in Congress, he spent 14 years serving our country as both an FBI special agent and federal prosecutor. Brian, welcome, and thank you for joining me on News World. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Pleasure. I really want to have you on because you come from an FBI background, but you're also a member of Congress. So I'm hoping your unique experience will help understand this a little better. Before we dive in, do you mind just spending a few minutes on your background as both an FBI agent and your work as a federal prosecutor? 
Sure. So, you know, I went to Quantico. I was at Quantico at the one year anniversary of 9-11 and was assigned first to New York City. That was my first domestic assignment. My last domestic assignment was in Los Angeles. And in between, I spent a lot of time overseas throughout Europe and Africa and Asia and the Middle East working out of what they call legal attaches or legats. Spent some time in headquarters in the public corruption unit. And regarding my federal prosecutor experience, if you're a lawyer in the FBI, you can cross-designate as a special assistant U.S. attorney. And I did that twice once in my hometown of Philadelphia in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, and also in the Eastern District of Virginia in Alexandria. Wow. Okay. So you have a unique perspective from the rest of us on the Monday, August 8th raid in Mar-a-Lago. What was your initial thoughts when you first heard about it? My initial reaction was shock because I know what goes into a normal search warrant. This was an unprecedented action, an unprecedented action that will require unprecedented justification. That's a very, very high bar. So I've tried to strike a reasonable tone on this, Newt, because I think it's important that nobody get out in front of their skis on this because the entire situation is going to be answered, I believe, in one document, and that's the affidavit for probable cause. That being said, the bar is extraordinarily high of what needs to be contained in that affidavit to justify the search that they conducted. Because from an evidence gathering standpoint, there's a range of options available to agents. On the most conservative end of the continuum, is the passive service of a subpoena with a future production date. And the most extreme invasive example is what happened, the dynamic execution of a search warrant. There's a lot of things you can do in between there along the continuum that are much more passive and don't engage in the invasive activity of a search warrant. For example, there's something called a forthwith subpoena that I've executed on. It's a subpoena that you serve at the door, but there's not a future production date. You demand production then and there, but you never enter the premises. So There were a lot of tools at the disposal of both the Bureau and DOJ. So what that search warrant is going to have to entail is the most extraordinary circumstances that justified the most extraordinary invasive evidence collection technique. So that's really what I'm looking for. And the DOJ is asking that this affidavit remain under seal to no surprise. Typically, affidavits do remain under seal until there's a complaint or an indictment filed in a case. But this is very different. This is a case of first impression. This is the first time in American history it's ever happened, so it's got to be treated differently. And I think at the very least, Newt, they can bring it into the skiff and present it to those of us on the House Intelligence Committee. I'm curious, never having served in the FBI, I don't understand some of the internal culture. Why would you send 30 agents? So again, the affidavit will detail this. I mean, normally, Newt, when you have a white-collar crime-type investigation, taking it out of this situation for a second... If we were arresting somebody for white-collar crime violation, no criminal history, you wouldn't execute a arrest warrant. You'd call their lawyer, you'd have them self-surrender, and you'd go through the processing. Certain circumstances dictate a higher-stakes type of action. I want to see the justification here. And to answer your question, why would you need 30 people? That's a hard thing to answer because the number of people you need to execute a search warrant depends on the size of the place you are, the sophistication of what you're looking for. Do you need evidence specialists? Do you need attorneys that are sifting for attorney-client privilege? Do you need people mirroring hard drives, in which case you need technical personnel? That's what determines how many people you need. But I will say, one of the questions that I will have when I look at this affidavit, when it's presented to us, is you know, as far as the level of precision that would be needed to execute a warrant this sensitive, you'd have to have somebody providing specific information as to the items to be seized, the places to be searched, and that those items are in that location right then and there. That requires constant, fresh, updated reporting to the Bureau. But if it took them nine hours 
that means either one of two things, either their probable cause was not what they thought it was because they weren't given precise information as to what it was and where it was, or the amount of documents that were authorized by the warrant were very voluminous. But again, all that's going to be contained in the search warrant probable cause affidavit. Well, I mean, I noticed in the initial listing of things they took, they had things like a cocktail napkin. I mean, apparently personal pictures. You know, the letter from President Obama to President Trump, which apparently was opened and read by an FBI agent. To me, it was as though the entry point may have been looking for one set of things, but in fact, they were sort of vacuum cleaning the whole place to see whether or not they'd find something that they could go after. Yeah. Again, we really need to see that probable cause affidavit, Newt. It's going to answer all of our questions. There's a lot of speculation going on here. If what you're saying is true, that's very troubling. There's no question about it. And moreover, if there were this apex type classified information, so as you know, there's different levels of classification. TSSCI is the highest, but then there's the sensitive access program. That's the apex of classification. It's typically limited to nuclear type information or covert operations. If that was there and there was no other way to get it, then the search warrant should have been very limited to that information, not photo logs and letters between former presidents. So again, this is all the reason why we need to see that affidavit. It's going to answer all the questions. There's apparently... Supreme Court rulings that, in fact, the president as commander-in-chief has basically unlimited capacity to declassify. So if he had issued that anything he took out was by definition declassified, I think it creates a really interesting legal mess to try to explain that it wasn't declassified even if the commander-in-chief declassified it. No question, because we're talking criminal law here, so you need mens rea, criminal intent. So it's not, even if he made a mistake, that wouldn't be sufficient. It's a very complicated case. You're right, Newt, and that's another layer of interest in this is the legal aspect. If an individual has almost plenary authority to declassify before they leave office, do you really want to get into that extra layer of complication with all the other complications in this case? So I'm a historian. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm way out of my depth here. But it strikes me, at least in the various you know TV shows I've watched, et cetera, that the prosecution always wants to avoid releasing the affidavit because it allows the defense to know what the prosecution is trying to accomplish. So in that sense, if I understand it right, there's a normal reluctance by prosecutors to get ahead of themselves in releasing that kind of information. On the other hand, as you pointed out, this is such an extraordinary moment that they almost have to bend over backwards to prove that they had a valid reason for going in. I mean, isn't that sort of a more complicated weighing of the balance than you would almost ever have? Absolutely. New standard protocol is all of this remains under seal until the case is presented to the court via indictment or complaint. This is not the run-of-the-mill case. So I have to imagine and I have to hope that when these decisions were made inside the Bureau and inside DOJ that they knew this that there is no way you can execute a search warrant on a former president's personal residence and expect the standard rule to apply that you're going to keep all this under seal and everybody's just going to be fine with it. I sure hope that it was part of their calculus that they knew that there was going to be immense pressure in a universal calling almost to show these records. The main reason why you try to keep things under seal, Newt, you're absolutely right. Prosecutors don't like to show their hand. It's one of the advantages they have in investigations is they can operate covertly and out of the public view. But when you make a covert case overt through the dynamic execution of a search warrant, 
of this level of magnitude, that justification goes away, I believe. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. A couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You raised an interesting point, which is there are members of the Congress 
who routinely handle classified information. Technically, I think all members of Congress are cleared for secrecy, but there are members who are cleared all the way up to the most sensitive information. And when I was speaker, I was part of the gang of eight. So in theory, we had access to virtually everything. I emphasize in theory. But wouldn't it be relatively reasonable intermediate step for the attorney general to decide in the House and Senate that the Intelligence Committee or the Judiciary Committee, that somewhere there was a group of people who were trustworthy that they could give everything to on a bipartisan basis and have some kind of assessment by this independent group as to whether or not this was, in fact, a runaway investigation or whether, in fact, it was a totally legitimate effort. I mean, wouldn't that be a middle ground? Sure, it is. And that's what I've been asking for. And to Mike Turner's point, Mike's the ranking member, soon to be chairman of the Intelligence Committee. And he also makes a good point that for this type of search to be justified, for it to be so time sensitive and so urgent and critical to national security that they moved forward, how is it possible that you know, he being the lead Republican, the ranking member on the Intelligence Committee was never briefed when he and our committee have oversight over the intelligence community. So how do you reconcile that, right? If it was so critical, it should have been briefed. If it wasn't briefed, then it mustn't have been critical enough to brief, in which case, how is it critical enough to execute a search warrant on a former president's personal residence? We have to reconcile that and get to the bottom of those two things. But one level, I mean, several people have mentioned to me that Director Ray last Friday basically stiffed the Senate committee, said, I have an appointment I can't miss. And it turned out to be a private plane that was waiting to go when he wanted to go. But he just got up and walked out. So hasn't there been sort of a non-cooperative approach here? Well, we'll find out. I'm hopeful that this week, next week, we're going to get some movement. I mean, there have been bipartisan calls, by the way. Chairman Schiff also reached out to the DNI director and asked for a briefing as well. I know Senator Rubio did as well. So it seems like everybody wants to get to the bottom of it. Of course, it seems like the Democrats are more interested in getting to the root of the investigation. In addition to that, we also want to get to the bottom of the decision on this investigative collection technique. And if there was any lesser intrusive means to do it, because there's a separate issue that I'm concerned about here, Newt, the FBI, you know, the bottom line is they have tens of thousands of cases spanning from fentanyl to organized crime to drug rings, all sorts of cases, white collar crime, securities fraud, insider trading. It's much more difficult for agents today to do their job than it was a week ago because the FBI and agents require the support of the public to do their job. We need to be able to recruit cooperators that introduce undercovers into criminal networks. When we're doing door knocks in neighborhoods, we need people to open the door, invite us into their living room, sit us down on their couch and share information with us. When you lose that, when you run into a scenario where one out of every two doors you knock on, you're going to get the door slammed in your face because of politics, that's a very dangerous thing for our country. And there are a ton of agents that have a harder time doing their job today than they did last week. As you know, there's been a joint Homeland Security and FBI intelligence briefing warning about increased threats against federal law enforcement. And we've actually seen at least one occasion of an armed man attempting to attack the FBI building in Cincinnati. What's your sense about whether or not all of the tension, and I noticed that President Trump had apparently sent a signal to justice, he'd be willing to cooperate with him in trying to quiet things down. What's your sense of whether there is, in fact, increased tension and increased danger? Well, there definitely is. And it reminds me of the summer of 2020 during that period of unrest when there was a lot of threats against local law enforcement. 
none of it's okay. And I think that message needs to be first and foremost, as we're proceeding in the analysis of the propriety or impropriety of what's transpired over the past week, all of us have to lead the conversation, Democrat, Republican, and everyone in between, that violence is never acceptable. Threats against law enforcement are never acceptable. And that anybody who threatens law enforcement ought to be arrested and prosecuted for it. I think that's really important because new to our conversation about what causes democracy to unravel, when people lose respect for the rule of law and start taking matters into their own hands, that's when the system collapses. We can't stand by and let that happen. Well, if you go back to when you first joined the Bureau, my sense was, and my experience of this, I guess, goes back into the 70s and 80s, there was a sense that the FBI was probably the most respected law enforcement agency in the world. It was the gold standard. And starting, I think, with the mishandling of the various Russian hoax matters, at least on the right, that whole sense of the agency has been pretty badly tarnished. And this latest cycle isn't helping any. I agree with you. If you really believe that policing matters and that the police ultimately are the thin line between anarchy and predatory behavior and decent lives for most people, then the FBI has to be held to a standard of being the most accountable agency, if you will, in the law enforcement field. I recently went back and read a fascinating book about the murders in Osage County in the 1920s, which was the first great success of Herbert Hoover and the FBI. And the local sheriff was corrupt. Native Americans were being killed to get their oil rights. Then it wasn't yet a bureau, but there was a department of the Justice Department. You know, they really played a vital role and a cooperative role in a way that was amazing and helped set their prestige for a half century, I think. Doesn't there have to be real care given by Director Ray and others that the agency come across as open to the public and responsible to the public and not engaged in vendettas and in behavior that can't be explained? Absolutely. He has no higher responsibility, as do all FBI directors, than to preserve and protect the brand of the FBI, and that being of unbiased, non-political pursuing of the facts wherever they lead and reporting those facts with unimpeachable integrity. That's the mission of the Bureau. I would actually suggest, Newt, you suggested Crossfire Hurricane is when this all started. I actually think it predates that. I would point back to the July 2016 press conference that Jim Comey gave, where he did something that was unprecedented for an FBI director. FBI agents and directors, directors will speak, but on a limited basis. Agents virtually never speak to the press. We do everything through a press office. That's what the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, and the prosecutors do. They speak to the press. But what he did there was something that I've never seen any FBI director do in the history of the Bureau. He injected the Bureau into a contentious presidential political campaign. And it made the, the agent population across the country and all 56 field offices very uncomfortable. And it sort of went on from there. And I think, honestly, Newt, and I don't enjoy saying this, but it's how I feel. Jim Comey did so much damage to that organization. And then later, right before the 2018 election, when he tweeted out that the country should vote straight Democrat, just sort of confirming all the suspicions people had about him. He's done tremendous damage to the FBI. And I don't enjoy saying that because a lot of people liked him when he first came in. That's what I think this all started, Newt. And you know, it makes me very sad because I dedicated my life to that organization. I know all the critical work they do. I know some of the amazing people that work there. And they've really been harmed by people that were at the top that really they had no control over what they were doing. And in a sense, the ultimate harm is that 
the country diminishes its most important single asset in trying to enforce the law. I mean, it has really been a remarkable institution for its 100-year history now. But, you know, I had the same feeling with Comey, and I could never quite figure out what he thought he was doing. I mean, on the one hand, it looked like he was trying to help Hillary. On the other hand, I thought he did a press event, I guess, in October that clearly I thought helped Trump. In fact, I called Trump and said, I think you just won the election. And you could never figure out in Comey's head, I mean, what did he think he was doing? I'm not sure we'll ever know. Well, the consistent theme across all that new was Jim Comey was in the spotlight, and that's what he wanted. He got that part of it anyway. But I think with Ray, there was a sense that he was going to be a big improvement. And that's why I think everything from, you know, perp walking a college professor out of National Airport to having three FBI agents show up with the congressman and his family to get his cell phone, which I think the the whole legislative branch ability to function without the executive branch running over it is at the heart of how the Founding Fathers saw this because they'd looked back at the English Civil War and they'd looked at Cromwell's dictatorship and they had a real sense of the importance of the separation of powers and the importance of the legislative branch not being intimidated by the FBI. We'd had a similar thing happen with Congress and Jefferson and he was legitimately guilty. I'm not saying he wasn't guilty. But when they went into his house, they didn't just take the things referencing the potential crime. They took all of his material, including legislative material about the part of the FBI that was picking up the material. And it strikes me that at some point in the not too distant future, there will be a real confrontation over whether or not the executive branch, this isn't Democrat or Republican, but whether or not the executive branch can in fact bully the legislative branch. And None of us have confronted yet that cell phones mean you can have an amazing volume of information on your cell phone. And if it's going to be picked up by the FBI, they're going to have to build almost the way they do with secret material. They're going to have to build some kind of division of labor where people who are not involved in the case go through the cell phone to separate the things that are not admissible from the things that are legitimately admissible. Does that make any sense at all? Absolutely. I mean, the Jefferson case you referred to, that was the speech and debate clause litigation. That's when it really got shaped recently. And a lot of that was thrown out because the court at the time had a very expansive view of what was protected under speech and debate. You know, as far as the recalibration of the balance of powers, I couldn't agree more, Newt. I'm from the Philadelphia area. We're big researchers and historians of Ben Franklin. And he spoke a lot about this, including when he spoke to that young paper boy, I believe, when he emerged from the Constitutional Convention and the boy asked, what kind of government have you given us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. And he emphasized the second point and later elaborated that they had created this American experiment that had never been tried anywhere in the world. And although they thought it was the greatest system in the world, they also said it's the most fragile system in the world. Because if there's any imbalance between those three branches, the system could potentially collapse. And we see that now. I mean, a big issue we're debating now is the AUMF and whether there's been a usurpation of Article One authority by Article Two, when it comes to issues of war and peace. We're seeing this with a lot of executive orders, and it is something that we have to be cognizant of, I believe. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I just ran across a quote from Tocqueville, who wrote about 1837, that if the United States remains a citizen-centered system, it will probably be free in perpetuity. But if it gradually drifts towards a government-centered system, that it's impossible for government to ever have the energy and capacity to replace all the things that citizens do and it would mean a steady decay of freedom. It's a very interesting paragraph, given what we're living through almost 200 years later. And Newt, the brilliance of you is your love for history. And I think that's what our country needs more than ever right now. We got to remember where we came from and what our founders debated and agreed upon and what they knew the risks were, because we seem to just take everything for granted now. We're 246 years old. We just celebrated our 246th birthday. 
That's not old. That's just a few generations. And yet we're the world's oldest democracy. No democracy has survived on this planet more than a few generations. And we forget that. We can't fathom waking up in a world where the U.S. dollar is not the world's currency standard, where America is not the world's economic and military superpower. But for those of us that are tracking China day in and day out, we could lose that very quickly. And Xi Jinping has said this before, you're never going to defeat America from the outside. The only way you beat America is from within, by turning American on American. He's gone so far as to identify what he calls the five spheres of American influence, traditional media, social media slash big tech, Hollywood slash entertainment, academia, and professional sports. And you see evidence of that, of China infiltrating the supply chains there to try to change us internally, culturally, and fighting with each other. I have to ask you just for a second, because your passion and your commitment and your obvious sincerity, what led you to decide to run for public office? I mean, it's a very difficult business. Inevitably involves very tough campaigning and very tough news media. And so you were stepping out from a very prestigious job to tackle something really hard. What led you to do that? You knew my brother, Mike. He was my predecessor who we lost a few years ago to cancer. And I'd never run for anything and never planned on running for anything. I loved being in law enforcement. But I came home for Thanksgiving 2015. My brother and I were talking about, you know, he laid a lot of brutal news on me that he had a terminal diagnosis and he didn't think he was going to be around much longer. And we talked about a lot of things. We had a lot of brotherly conversation. We talked about what he was working on, what he wanted to see carry forward. And it was then that I thought about it, made the tough decision to leave the bureau, which, by the way, is a one way street. Once you leave the bureau, you can't get back in unless you go through Quantico again. It was hard getting through Quantico at 28 years old. I could never get through at 42 or 43. So I knew that it was a permanent decision and I was leaving for an open seat in a swing district in a presidential election year. There were no certainties, but I decided to do it, you know, because I love my brother dearly and I love my country and decided to give it a go. And as it would have it now, here I am still involved in Bureau Matters, but in more of an oversight role. The process of campaigning and all that, I mean, would you recommend it to others? Well, it's not for the faint of heart. You got to have thick skin. Because as you know, public officials have no protection against slander or libel. People can say whatever they want about you. So it's hard, but it's worth it, Newt, because again, the thing I love about you is your love for history. I wish everybody in America would have an appreciation for history like you do, because it really emphasizes the weight of our job right now. We have 435 members of the House, 100 senators, and it's up to us to preserve the world's oldest and greatest democracy. It's on us. And the way we do that is having the right perspective of our job. And that is to be the voice, collective voice right now of 740,000 people per congressional district and to make sure that we keep an open mind and we always remember that the power in this country lies with the people, not the politicians, not the business leaders. It lies with the people. And if we remind ourselves of that every day, I think that that's really important. Yeah, I had two fascinating experiences when I was a relatively junior member. One was... Bill Frenzel, who was just a great, remarkably intelligent member from Minnesota, who came to a freshman orientation class and said, look, if you're serving late at night and you walk out on the Capitol steps and you look across at the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress and your heart doesn't go a little pity pat with an extra beat, go home. You've lost the sense of why you should be here. Now, the countervailing story was Henry Hyde, who was one of the great members and for whom the Hyde Amendment is named, Henry came to some group one time and he said, you know, I came here to change the world. And now that I've been here long enough, 
I simply hope to leave the room with dignity, <laughs> which is, I think, a little bit humbling and a reminder that, you know, somebody once said you get 535 senior class presidents all serving simultaneously. Well, that's true. It has its own interesting implications. It sure does. And you had to manage that operation. I think you lead it, although I have to say, I think Pelosi manages it. She has the most power of anyone I've ever seen. It's astonishing to me. And given my own experience, if you had said to me, you're going to have a three or four vote margin, I would never have dreamed she could ram through the stuff she rams through. So in that sense, I'd say she manages it. My experience was I let it, and I could only lead as far as they would go. and I couldn't go any further. I think Kevin will be closer to the leadership model. I also think it's a problem because Democrats tend to be a little bit like muskox. They gather together. They stay herded up against the wolves. Republicans are all individuals. I once had a conservative in Hollywood say to me, the reason you can't get a conservative Hollywood is that the liberals here love getting together. And the conservatives are defined by the fact that they're all individuals. They don't have any interest in going to a meeting. <laughs> so I think to some extent, leading Republicans is dramatically different than leading Democrats. And you know that just looking at Philadelphia and the great history of the machine. Look, I really want to thank you. I think you're now in a remarkable position as an FBI agent, as a member of Congress. Given what's currently going on, I have a hunch you're going to have a very significant role to play in the next three or four years. And I really appreciate your taking the time to sort of help educate the rest of us. It's a pleasure to see you, Mr. Speaker. I'm a big fan of yours, and thanks for having me on. Thank you to my guest, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick. You can learn more about the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.